This is Spade Spoon Soul, a podcast about all the ways food intersects with our faith from seed to spade to spoon. Hi, I'm Jennifer Baskerville-Burroughs. I am the Bishop of the Diocese of Indianapolis, the Episcopal Church in Central and Southern Indiana. And I'm so excited for this podcast today. I want to introduce my co-host, Brian. Hi, I'm Brian Sellers-Peterson, and I live in Roslyn, Washington, on the east slope of the Cascade Mountains, on the, the land of the, the Yakima people. And um, I'm just, I'm really looking forward to today's episode. It sort of builds on uh, the last one we posted with Norman Wurzbaugh, but today we're talking with Ian McSweeney from uh, the Agrarian Trust and Abbott Bailey, who uh, serves as the canon to the ordinary in the Diocese of Virginia. I'll let Jennifer explain to all of our listeners, because there might be a couple of you who don't know what a canon to the ordinary is, um, but uh, we'll get to that, okay? But we're really glad um, that uh, y'all are with us today. Yeah, we have these churchy terms. And so um, before we launch into it, because I really want to make a lot of time for Abbott and Ian to share with us um, all the, the on the topic. But Canon to the Ordinary is one of those funky churchy words that mostly means the same thing across the church. It's the person who is usually the second in command to the bishop. And ordinary is the other term for bishop uh, diocesan typically. So Canon to the Ordinary at least how we do it here in the Diocese of Indianapolis, is the sort of right and left hand persons to the bishop. And it could be everything from uh, kind of chief of staff to oversight of the diocese uh, in an assisting role to the to the bishops. And so, Abbott, you might want to say more about that, but I would imagine your portfolio is quite wide in a, a very, very large and complex diocese like the Diocese of Virginia. And um, so if, when you get to that point, I would love for you to say more about that. But we, our beginning question, which we do every time, and you can slip a coin in, and Abbott, which one of you wants to take it first, but we always want to ask, where are you rooted? And you can take that any way you might want to interpret that term. Where are you rooted? All right. Thank you. Uh, so I am rooted um, in family. I'm a father to two young boys. Uh, I'm a husband to my wife, Elizabeth. Uh, we have a small farm in southern New Hampshire. Uh, we try to um, protect them and introduce them to the world we're, we're dealing with um, in a very delicate way. Uh, really kind of hold a lot of grief and and kind of protection and kind of hope for uh, generations that are growing up now faced with all they are. So it's, you know, the more we can keep the wonders of childhood and the connection to each other and family and land as sacred as we can for as long as we can. That's really what uh, we're trying to do as a family. And it kind of roots us to place and relationships in many ways. I am rooted here in Richmond, Virginia. My feet are planted on the ground here in uh, Powhatan land. And um, where I am rooted these days is somewhat of a provocative question for me personally, because I have been in a, um, a, a significant amount of transition over the last couple of years I, after being pretty rooted here on the East Coast uh, for most of my life. I went out to California for a couple of years, and now I'm back here in back here in Virginia, and even in Virginia, have been moving around quite a bit. And 
So when I moved out to California, I was really having like viscerally trying to get settled and my body just kind of wouldn't settle. And I realized because I really had been uprooted, I was in a a new place, not just new work, um, new friends, new, you know, community, but, but literally the land, my body kind of didn't know yet how to settle into the land there. And when I was out on the land one day, it came to me, sink into the landscape and it will love you. And so I've carried that with me um, in the midst of all of these transitions to to just wherever I am to sink into the landscape and to not necessarily make a big thing of it. Sometimes it's just noticing um, a diff- an insect on a leaf that that I would not have noticed um, before, but you know, being more intentional about that and just taking small moments every day to sink into the landscape a little bit and let it love me and to root in that way in the midst of all the transitions. I love hearing the rooted stories. Thank you both, Ian and Abbott. Um, Ian, now I bet you have an elevator speech about all the good work that the Agrarian Trust is up to. Now, of course, today, given the scope of um, of uh, our podcast, we're particularly interested in Faithlands, but also um, uh, a newer program at Agrarian Trust, uh, the Agrarian Commons. But, you know, you know, um, give us your short elevator speech. Yeah, happy to. So Agrarian Trust is a newer uh, national land trust focused on innovating the work of land trusts across the country. Um, our mission is to support the next generation of farmers, stewards, ranchers, and their connection to land all framed within the reality that uh, land in this country is unjust in ownership, equity, and tenure in so many ways. Land is the foundation for so much of society and culture. And land, farmland, specifically in this country, is in a, a state of massive transition because of the demographics of farmland owners. You know, we're seeing um, projected to be upwards of 400 million acres of farmland in transition this decade and next. So raising awareness for that reality of farmland in transition, the injustice that exists within ownership, equity, and tenure, and really the opportunity and the challenge to do something about that. You know, different than many other challenges we face in the world today, uh, the injustice and land ownership and tenure can change uh, transaction by transaction, transfer by transfer that's happening every day. 37 mid-sized farms a day in this country close for good, according to USDA, from 2012 to present. So that need to do something about how farmland is owned, who has equity and tenure to farmland is critically important. And so we, our other work is supporting stakeholders, engaging in stakeholder networks. So that speaks to Faithland's work, that speaks to other collaborations we have with U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance and National Family Farm Coalition. I can expand upon any of those, but really that's working in collaboration, working to develop networks and shared learning 
is part of the work. And then really to, to be brave, be um, uh, inspirational, and to step forward with action, because we're called to do so in so many ways right now. So for us to create things like a new model for land ownership, equity, and tenure holding within the construct of land trust nonprofit world is what this agrarian commons work is for us. So, you know, we are intending to be an organization that both models uh, pathways and learning around how we connect with, how we own how we hold tenure and land, and uh, provides kind of inspiration, resources, guidance for others to take similar pathways or learn from our, our learning, our success and missteps along the way and create their own pathways, but really working to instigate change, knowing that we cannot continue on these same paths we've been on, that, you know, these systems and the intentions we have carried out over the last decade, over the last century around land conservation, around land holding, around agriculture are destroying our planet. They're destroying our communities. They're destroying our health and the health of the soil. And we need new pathways. So really, it's for us, it's, it's to be you know, doing the work and also provocative and inspiring and advocating others to do their work as well to address land, land relationships, land ownership, land tenure, land equity. Wow. And I, um, I don't know how others might hear this, but as someone who tries to track on this a little bit, I'm a little bit, um, well, maybe a lot overwhelmed by those statistics. Um, we talk about wealth transfer a lot. Uh, in these days, but the land transfer stat is pretty alarming. And it raises the question for me that I've been asking for about two decades now, which is how shall we eat? You know, where will our food come from? And so, so yes, I just need to pause and just name that these are statistics with which we should become familiar because this is not a down the road issue. It's like right now issue. So Abbott, I would love to ask you as someone who served in two different dioceses and are familiar with church land assets and to to see what you make of this. You know, you've got the big 30,000 foot view from the positions that you've held. And I'm wondering whether you might be able to share an example or two about how this, you know, how these assets and issues of land use might be playing out um, in the Episcopal world. We've got camps, conference centers, church building, Mm -hmm. land. What, What are you seeing? Yeah. You know, I was struck by the words, we cannot continue, that Ian just said, we cannot continue on the same path. And I think that that is, that is more and more what we are recognizing um, in the, um, in the church as well. And, and having been in these two places and seen churches really wrestling with the blessing and the burden of their buildings, their um, grounds, their land. And the burden is really something that we need to think about how to reframe. That we're sitting, a lot of our churches are sitting, and dioceses are sitting on a lot of land. And it is not necessarily being you know, I don't want to make a blanket statement that there, there are a number of ways in which um, we are not 
hopefully using this blessing for the common good and in a way that really honors, you know, what we, you know, what we have. And so I see a number of congregations really beginning to wrestle that and with that and be thinking about how do we ever more deeply root in our communities or re-root in our communities with this blessing that, that we have and recognizing that that they don't have some of the burden comes because we might think that we have to be the one to do all of the things like this is our ministry or our ministry to um, or something that we have to have everything kind of within ourselves um, to do it. And this reframing that there are so many opportunities for, for partnership and actually to be invited into the leadership of others. And I see that pretty significant, that potential so significantly with things like agrarian, uh, agrarian trust and farming, you know, it may be that we want to have a garden, but you don't actually have to be the one to have the garden. You know, there are, it's, it's a way to be invited into the life of the community, larger community and allow the larger community to be invited into into the life of the smaller community of the of the church. And then I think, you know, we we also have to name that this the that this blessing um, that we have to be aware of and reckon with and wrestle with the ways that we have come into possession of this this land, um, as Ian has already has already mentioned in 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 some cases, we um, have the land that we have through dispossession, through genocide, through participation in institution of slavery, um, and you know, coming to recognize that, and then what is our responsibility as a as a result of of that. Um, so I see that a lot of of congregations really, really wrestling with that and needing, frankly, some help reframing and companioning. In, in doing that, in doing that work. Ian, I'd really like you to reflect on what Abbott just said. I was with you, I guess, before COVID, put it that way, at Piscean's Ranch for the, the, the beginning of Faithlands, and you've continued to work with a, a wide variety of religious bodies. And I was really struck by um, a comment that uh, Norm Wiersbaugh uh, made um, in our previous uh, podcast, you know, just about, well, let me read it. I think it's, we've got time and we can extend a few minutes. Uh, but I, I think, you know, sometimes it's good to hear things twice. So hopefully y'all listen to Norm's podcast. Um, so go back and listen to it. But this, this really grabbed me. Uh, faith institutions, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, etc., all have land. Religious organizations are some of the biggest landowners in the world. I'm thinking about how land prices have soared. 20,000, 25,000 per acre. You can farm that land the rest of your life and never pay it off. We have young people, not just young people, but all sorts of people that want to grow nutritious food. They want to grow flowers, grow orchards, but they can't afford land. It's way too expensive. So the question is whether or not faith institutions, churches, synagogues, temples, etc., with available land 
And in a lot of cities where land prices are even higher than 25,000 per acre, how these organizations can help. What if they were to make this land available to people who want to cultivate it, grow food on it, grow flowers for the community, create green spaces that are places of rest. There are so many ways that churches can use their properties to contribute to the healing of communities, and I'll add in my arts, and the world. But you've had a lot of experience, Ian, uh, working with other religious bodies. Um, but, you know, let's, what do you have to say about some of what Abbott has said and, and Norm as well? Yeah, a number of things come to mind. You know, first off, just the to whom much is given, much is required. Right. And we're talking about the the holding of land by a few and the the lack of access, tenure, equity and land by many. You know, the, the thought of kind of where and how we'll eat over 70 percent of the hands that grow the food and provide the food we all eat are hands of color. And people of color own less than two percent of the farmland in this country. So, you know, those that are growing the food, those that are cultivating the land more and more so as the years go on, those that are kind of stewarding the soils and the planet have less and less ownership, access, tenure, and equity in the soils they need to cultivate that food. So how do we change that dynamic? I, I, I think part of it is that the, you know, part of the burden I see personally, and, and I'm coming from the outside to this perspective, but part of the burden that I see personally is managing of excess assets, excess land, you know, too much uh, land beyond what is needed becomes a burden. Too much of anything uh, becomes a burden for people to manage. So instead of, right, thinking of that as a burden, how do we think of that as a pathway, as an invitation for relationship, for connection, for uh, new kind of work with communities? And, and so for us and our work, like what we've tried to center our work on is, is that we feel there's certain needs that are being unmet around land ownership, access, and tenure. We feel there's certain models that nonprofit structures and land trusts could uh, undertake to address those. But, but really, that's all we have. Like, you know, the, the work, the cultivation of soil, the growing of our food, the, the kind of community investment and relationships, those exist in communities across the country. There's, there's very capable, willing people who are devoting their life to that work. And so how do we bring our resources, the structures and knowledge and experience we're gaining when invited to communities in a collaborative way. And, and really that, I, I think, begins to get at undoing that excess holding of things in a way of shared holding of things towards a greater good. So, you know, knowing that kind of farmers, by and large, routinely year in and year out identify access to land as the number one barrier to a viable farm operation, knowing that over the last 30 years, market value of farmland has increased year over year every year. 
and farm incomes have decreased year over year, the financial reality of the cost of farmland is prohibitive to agriculture. And I would argue it's prohibitive to the world we want to see. We're, we're valuing uh nutrient-dense, locally-produced food. We're valuing soil health. We're valuing sequestering carbon and addressing climate collapse. All those are only possible if the stewards, the farmers, have secure equity and tenure in the land. They need to carry that forward. And so how to kind of bring about those needs for those that are most directly connected, most closest to the soil knowing that we we don't have to do it all. We, we each have roles to play in knowledge or assets or relationships that we can bring forward, but through collaboration uh, is how we're going to achieve any success and how we're going to kind of change the, many of the paths we're on presently. Well, I have to say, I'm just hearing the language that you're using, Ian, and it's language that we use here in the Diocese of Indianapolis all the time. Collaborative partnerships is the touch phrase that's a part of one of our uh, pillars of mission. It's in one of our programs that relates to how our buildings and properties relate to the communities. And so I just want to note that one of the things I see as an, an issue is that we as church people have to continue to do our theological work on what does it mean to be a steward that holds land and trust on behalf of God's creation and that we don't own it really. And so what I, what I sense, and I, and Abbott, I, I would love to get your perspective and maybe an example from you on this. What I sense is that there's often this, I might be projecting, but I think there's a sense of grief and or failure at not being able to tend the land or the property in the ways that churches have historically done. And so there's a desire perhaps to collaborate, but there's some grief or some other deeper work that needs to happen to understand that sharing and collaborating in this way is actually the theological Christian point of it all and not seen as a failure of not being able to do it on your own. So because it's that's that's a piece of the work I think that we have to do. And because I think the possibilities are everywhere. And so, Abbott, what would you what do you see? What would you say to all to that as we try to make these connections here? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And yes, is what I would say, what I would say to that. I do think that there is a lot of, of, of grief out there and maybe even shame in not being able to to tend the way that perhaps um, congregations have historically um, been doing. And there are these wonderful examples of, of folks that have reached out in ways that might have felt risky. And, and in some cases, they, you know, we might think, people might think with farmland that it has to be these big, you know, they have to have a lot of land or a big project. And, you know, one of the most thriving um, examples that I know of, of a collaborative partnership is with uh, Santiago St. James in Oakland, California, um, with indigenous permaculture, where they have literally put a garden on top of the pavement, the parking lot. So they're using part of their parking lot in partnership with, uh, well, Indigenous per permaculture has created this incredible 
um, gardens that is used in so many different ways um, for community building, for education, um, for um, reestablishing indigenous seeds um, and perpetuating indigenous seeds. It's just this wonderful partnership. And it's this relatively small plot of land to do that. And, you know, I was thinking this morning about the word kenosis, which is not always a word that comes to related to, to the, to the land, but the ways that we're being invited to empty ourselves of our need to hold on and to trust that in the letting go, there will be flourishing and abundance in this collaborative partnership, really in communion uh, with the land and with, um, with our communities. But that's just one example. And, and I would love for this to be um, you know, we can all, all of us can come up with different examples um, around the Episcopal Church, and it would be great if this could be even more mainstream um, than what it is, that this is a topic, a regular topic of conversation and an option on the table as congregations are thinking about how to leverage what they have for the common good and deepen their roots and reroute in their in their communities. Well, I mean, so just to quickly follow up on that, I think the, to use the word pathway once again, like we, we have that pathway. And so I was reminded, I think Brian reminded us of the 2018 resolution that came through our churchwide general convention, recommending that all dioceses and faith communities, I'm quoting here, dioceses and faith communities and institutions create partnerships enabling the use of church owned land for regenerative agriculture and biodiversity conservation projects in order to sequester carbon and to mitigate climate change. I think I remember when that was being um, talked about in committee when I, at the 2018 convention. So it's radical. And I'm thinking, now it's four years later, what have we done? Do people know about this? How do we connect? Because it seems that the agrarian trust, I mean, there's you're, you're the partner. and <laughs> We've got this land. How do we do that connecting piece? So, you know, I wonder, like, what's holding us back here, aside from the things we've just been naming? Like, we've everybody's here at the table. We just have to connect them, right? Yeah, I, I, I think that letting go is difficult. It's grief work that we've touched upon. Eh? And it's, there's so many layers of letting go that are difficult and take time and process. And, and the, the challenge we face is so significant to our times, to, to human civilization uh, on this planet, to health of Mother Earth, that I find myself at times kind of falling into the trap of thinking we need to make big, significant change all the time to in any way counteract what's going on. At the same time, like our work of growing trust, and, and my belief is that you know, single small acts of change have such potential to ripple out and be replicated and evolve and be recreated by others. And so scaling things back and starting small, starting with, you know, those of us here, like, what can we do? How, how can we manifest this with one piece of land in Virginia, for, for example, say, like, you know, how can we model what we want 
if I can just bring forward a story for a minute, uh, relative local to Virginia, is is that we we are doing some work now in Petersburg, uh, a a kind of the town just south of Richmond, uh, town that has been uh, named as the most food insecure town in the state of, of Virginia, uh, a town that is predominantly people of color who lack and are excluded from access to so much. We we just finished fundraising. We just acquired a five acre, so small again, but significant five acre farm property right next door to an elementary school that serves 500 plus students, 92% of which are food insecure. That is a significant change for that community, for that school, for generations to come. And it's a very small, minor step. It, it's one parcel of land. It's it's a few hundred thousand dollars raised. It's it'll be production that that feeds you know a small number of families. But the the impact and the ripple that that can have is significant, and it goes so far beyond what uh, others are doing in many ways. And, you know, so many different approaches and so many different uh, bodies of work are needed in present times. And I don't frame this to exclude or, or kind of uh, note what we're doing as as superior to others, but just that you know, so many approaches to what Petersburg needs as a community for food security are based on charity models of food pantries, of food subsidies, right? Of of kind of shelf space on a corner store for something local. Um, a five acre farm producing food where the kids can look out the window of the school and see the food being grown and pick up food there is significant. It's small as a project, but significant in the impact to community and generations to come. So I think how can we scale back our vision of what we're going to do and do a step at a time, something that's manageable, that that can be a model of what we hope and then be evaluated and evolve and create a new model that's that's different or addresses the missteps we had. But we, you know, we need to move to action and actions need to be at human scale is what I'd put forward. And we need to recognize that that letting go is a long term process and filled with grief and filled with emotions and relationships that have to be attended to. But through small steps forward, we're creating new stories and a new path that can bring hope and counter that grief. So, Ian, if correct me if I'm wrong, didn't you do a video on this? Yeah. 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 We, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, a big part of the mission of Triple S or... Um, spade spoon soul is to tell stories inspire people um so y'all should just google agrarian trust petersburg i guess agrarian commons and you'll find that video and then don't just absorb it for yourself share it with other people because i think it's a story that resonates uh, with a lot of people so thanks thanks for sharing that that's great Sure. Yeah, you're welcome. And and just to share, we we were on a, a, a podcast with 
this author, Heather McGee, recently, uh, and she wrote this book, The Sum of Us. And, and what she framed recently in, in a conversation was that we, we only believe the stories we're told. Our total belief system is based on the stories we're told. And what we need right now is new stories. We need stories of hope. We need stories of inspiration. We need stories of innovative new models and courageous steps forward. <laughs> through those stories and through those models, our belief system can expand beyond what we ever thought was possible. But until we tell those stories, until we take those steps and create those models, um, we're stuck in the same belief system. We never have enough time for these podcasts. We've got to figure this out because now I've got so many more questions, but I just want to say one phrase, and this might be familiar to all of us, particularly you, Abbott. I've done some work over the last 10 years with edible schoolyards, and all I could think about is edible churchyards. <laughs> like, why don't we have an edible churchyards initiative? We already have a resolution to enable it. Like, there's just so much potential there, and it just needs a pithy name and something that people can grab this concept quickly with, and um, that might help enable the movement with something that there are already models for, you know, every hope Alice Waters had was that every church, every school would have some kind of ability to grow food and connect our young people with how food comes to the table and to teach science and history and all kinds of things through that and tell stories, right? And so every church, even the most landlocked places can have some way to create a, an edible um, connection to the land that all generations might be able to connect and benefit from. If I can just chime in too, that, that's yeah. such an important pathway um, that I've, I've kind of thought about for a long time is, is that kind of community-centered food relationships and culture. And the realities are that the modern CSA movement borrowed from subscription agriculture that existed before, but the modern uh, kind of current CSA model we have started in 1984 with two farms. According to USDA now, there's over 15,000 CSA farm models across the country. So 1984 to today, to have that growth in kind of a business model for farms and a community relationship to the farms. Farmers markets have had a similar growth tra trajectory during that point in time. So as, as we see other institutions and other community fabric decline and, and struggle in present times in compelling people in, in kind of engaging culture and communities, food, and relationship to food and culture around food in accessible ways for communities have shown over the last several decades that there's such immense appetite and hunger and growth potential for that. So how do we use food and community center food as that avenue to invite people in a very open, inclusive way forward? Going back to the edible churchyards for a moment that connects to what you just said, Ian, is that I, I love that edible churchyards and um, that it just sparks the imagination, which is something, which is, I think, something that we are yearning for as well, particularly when we think about um, how to, to step more deeply into how we're being called to, to gift our 
um, land or buildings. That spark of the imagination, I think, is so is so important, and and the stories that we can tell to begin to open up that imagination. And I want to go back to something that I had said at the beginning about that there is a yearning for this in the congregations. And I think that uh, in addition to finding ways to spark that imagination, to tell the stories is there's an invitation to, to figure out how to companion um, congregations in this. Some, some can do this very well on their own, and, but there are lots that, that I think could move more fully in this with some intentional companioning. So figuring out what that looks like and how, how we might be able to do that, I think, could really forward uh, the conversation and the action in this regard. Well, lots of food for thought and, um, and actually some action. <laughs> there's, there's so much we can do. But we are at the end of our time. I, I, it is just, uh, we could go on and on. We say this every time, but we really mean it. And so I'm going to begin to wrap us up and just implore folks to follow the links that we'll post along with the show notes here to find out more about the Agrarian Trust and about all the amazing possibilities that there are for churches and, uh, and anybody to step into this work. We are not lacking for all of the pieces. We just need the motivation to put them together. So thank you, Ian and Abbott, for sharing with us today. Well, that's a wrap uh, for today's episode. And if you want to uh, know more, you know, check out our Facebook page um, or you can email us at spadespoonsoulpodcast at gmail. So thanks, everyone. Thank you. And as we um, wrap up, I want to thank our producer, Derek Weston, who is a Presbyterian pastor and community organizer, urban farmer, filmmaker, podcaster, and the multi-talented Jay Sidebotham for the wonderful artwork for our podcast and Ryan Lee for the great music. So until next time, we hope you will find ways to connect your soul to your spade or spoon or both. Take care, everybody. 